David, how are you, sir? I'm doing great. And I'm really excited because uh, I just love talking paleo. And this is Paleo Nerds, and we are the biggest nerds. <laughs> yeah, some of us are nerdier than others, but I, I think we kind of balance each other out, man. I think we're, well, we're, we're total Paleo you, Nerds. When I was a kid, if you were a nerd, it wasn't a good thing, but I'm proud to be a Paleo Nerd. So I, I'd be proud to be more nerdier than you in Paleo. Yeah, man. Well, nerd is the word, and I, I've been a lifelong nerd. I got to say that. I get into a topic. <laughs> and I, is that the definition of a nerd? You just go way deep and... Yeah, I wow. think so. But, you know, wasn't there a movie where these kids are socially awkward as well? Yeah, well, there's that. <laughs> so so yeah, there, that's maybe that. the, the downside of it. But it's yeah. springtime here in Ojai. As well as here in Ketchikan, Alaska. And, and what determines, what's the first sign of spring after your uh, horizontal rain and gray, gray, gray skies? Well, there's deer now in the yards, and there's deer poop oh. all over the yard. But uh, they've been around all winter. But uh, the robins and the thrushes are here oh, in numbers, right? right. And uh, the crows and ravens are starting to leave town. Oh, what? What they? Oh, they they stay for the winter and then split in the spring. Yeah, they stick around town for the winter because easy meals and like you know these right. humans are doing stuff. And then as springtime comes around, they start thinking of other things. You know, all right. they love. But all, right. all kinds of little food sources show up elsewhere, i.e. Ah. like little grubs and little robin eggs to eat. And they just sure. kind of go elsewhere. Sure. And do the, the ravens meal. and crows, do they eat any of the the fish, you know, the, the seafood, the, the herring eggs that appear? And, the, and the they are foods. opportunists at every turn, right. but uh, they um, they do like to eat. Uh, uh, ravens like to eat uh, baby birds. Yeah, eggs. <laughs> that's right. We, so, we I remember that from you know, our raven episode. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Protein, wherever you can get it. Just like me, man. I'm always thinking <laughs> about the next cheeseburger, wherever I can get it. Yeah. But yeah, man. And um, you're, you, you're going on tour. You've been on tour. You're. Yeah. I was in uh, New Zealand. Well, it's like a mini Alaska. They have volcanoes and fjords and, and orcas. It's, it's absolutely beautiful there. It's on my bucket list. Someday I want to go. Pivoting to paleo stuff, you know, there's all this news has been going on. You heard the latest about Tully Monster, right? Right, right. Tully We've Monster about... is this weird long-necked thing that's about 30 centimeters long that they find in Mason Creek, Illinois, fossil Lagerstätten, right? That's right, right. Preserved, soft-bodied. It's got the mouth in the end of a nozzle, eyes out on stalks, totally yeah. weird. Yeah. And we had a guest on who said it is a vertebrate. And now uh, there's Yasmina. Yasmina, she says chemical signature is there for vertebrate. She's proved it. And then out comes another paper. So, yeah, saying, no, it's not a vertebrate. Can't be a vertebrate. Yeah. yeah. So, but I think that's what's great about science. It is until you're proven wrong. And then, and then until they're proven wrong, and then it's back to what it isn't. Well, I think I kind of still lean with uh, Yasmina because, you know, they don't have any actual bone or anything. These are skin right. impressions. There's a lot of them. Yeah. The latest paper is all about the head muscles or whatever, right. you know. Right. So anyways, science is fun. What do you think? I'm going to stick with uh, weird vertebrate or proto-vertebrate. Uh, the reason why is this chemical signature that Yasmina Veeman, she, she, she finds it on a molecular level, on, on an atomic level. Yeah, this, so it this, fell yeah. out on the vertebrate side of yeah. all that, the chemistry. So I, right. I, I don't know. I trust what she was talking about is way beyond me, but I don't yeah. know. But I think there's so much about the, especially deep, deep time, the farther back you go, the less we know. Yeah, and, so, and that rhymes. <laughs> yeah, I guess it does. <laughs> 
So we have uh, a fun, fun interview today. And we have both been to this museum in Casper, Wyoming. Yeah, it's a foursome today. Yeah. yeah, Like a game of golf. Yeah, there is no I in foursome either, right? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) But we will talk to both of them and see how it goes. And uh, we may, we'll try not to talk over each other. You grab a nine iron, I'll grab my wedge, and we'll pick up the uh, phone and give them a ring uh, to uh, Castro, Wyoming, where they're both sitting in their offices right now, awaiting Paleo Nerds. The phone call. Hey, Dave, meet J.P. Cavagelli and Russell Hawley from the Tate Geological Museum at Casper College in Casper, Wyoming. J.P. is the field operations specialist, collections manager, and prep lab manager for the museum. And Russell is an education specialist and a fellow visual artist, as well as the type specimen for paleo nerddom. (laughs) Hey, Russell. Hey, J.P. Hey, guys. Hi. Hi, Ray. Hello. How's it going? Russell, I want to start with you. And we, we do have, uh, you know, four of us here on the old, uh, on the, on the podcast today, but, but Russell, I actually figured out the exact day that I met you, sir. No and kidding. That's right. It was August 25th of 2000. And I was with a guy by the name of Kirk Johnson. You may have so heard of him. But what's that paper you're holding up there? Some sort of a Venn diagram? What is that? Well, this is my memoirs from uh, oh. that day, all those oh. years ago and all the things I did. And you may notice, Russell, that right beside your name here, actually, is I meet Russ, go to Tate Museum, Archaeotherium, and I've drawn a little hell pig. Wow. And wow. We decided that you were the, the type specimen for paleo nerddom because when I walked in, we, you and I were just drawn to each other, and we immediately started talking, like, forget the dinosaurs, hell pigs are where it's at. <laughs> so. So my question to both of you, of, of the two of you, JP and Russell, which one of you is the bigger paleo nerd? Oh, yeah. Oh, I will default to Russell <laughs> by more than a metric yard. <laughs> okay. So All why, right. Russell, why might you be considered the uh, paleo nerd uh, type specimen, sir? Boy, I, I don't know. Um, I think it's partly because uh, field work has a certain amount of glamour associated with it. So <laughs> if you're out there, you know, like Indiana Jones with your sun hat and your rock hammer, uh, there's a certain romance about it. Whereas meanwhile, uh, the guy who's... Um, crouching over his uh, work table with his double uh, um, five micron technical pens. Ooh, those tiny pens. Maybe as more of a nerd. Russell, were you born a paleo nerd? What's your origin story? Where, where were you born and when did you come to love all things prehistoric? Uh, well, I was uh, born in Seattle, Washington, or, uh, you know, um, uh, greater uh, Ketchikan. Lower <laughs> <laughs> uh, Ketchikan. Right. Yeah. Uh, same flora, many similarities in culture. and uh, But it took me four years to become a, uh, a paleo nerd. And uh, that was when my uh, parents got me some plastic dinosaurs uh, for Christmas, put in the, my stocking. And, uh, you know, they just captivated me. I was obsessed oh. with dinosaurs from that moment on. Mom and dad said, oh, boy. It's the dinosaur phase. All the little boys go through the dinosaur phase. We'll just wait a bit, and uh, he'll outgrow it. Uh, here we are, 50 years later. They're still waiting. It's a terminal case. <laughs> Absolutely. And JP, you, what's your background? Where did you Where did you begin? Well, I began in Massachusetts in the summertime of, or well, let's just say the early 60s. Yeah. Man. And uh, I became a paleo nerd in second grade 
me and my friend Dave Vafiatis were dinosaur buddies. And uh, by third grade, that was over. Right. And then I came back to it as a college student. And dinosaurs were way off the horizon. I was intrigued by fossil mammals, and I still find them more exciting. Oh. Although a good a good dinosaur fossil is pretty cool, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You had an early dinosaur thing, but then you left it behind. And yeah, like four year old Russell did not do. Right. I did that. And well, was this grade. about failing calculus 20 times? Yeah, that would no, be... no, no, only oh. three times. Yeah, <laughs> fail me thrice, shame on me, fail me 20. Oh, I yeah. forget how that goes, <laughs> but at any rate, yeah. Um, yeah, mathematics are are not my fuckton. Uh, what? I do not do well. Uh, fuckton, it's a, a fifth word, it means area of expertise. Oh, okay. Wait, can you spell yeah. that? Fuckton. Yeah, T-H-U-K-T-U-N. Oh, thank goodness, this is a family show. So, yeah. Russell, you're a fellow art major, though, too. So you went into fine arts because you can draw. Like, that was your childhood superpower, right? You could draw. And you <laughs> you went on to art school. Where did you go to art school? And, and how did you end up at the Tate Museum? Well, I went to art school at University of Colorado. Um, and uh, before... I switched majors to fine art. I'd taken a bunch of science classes in preparation for becoming a paleontologist. Oh. So I uh, took uh, comparative chordate anatomy, animal behavior, insect biology, uh, just a lot of fun fun classes, interesting classes, uh, mm -hmm. dissected uh, a salamander and a shark and all sorts of cool stuff. I don't regard those classes as a waste of time because uh, although I did switch to a fine art major, I ended up uh, having to communicate with scientists in order to draw what they want me to draw and understand what they want me to draw. So if you know, one of them says, now don't forget that the fossa antorbitalis is displaced anteriorly. I don't have to ask for a translation. I've got enough oh. background to kind of Can you translate that, please? <laughs> we don't. It means the hole in front of the eye is set far oh, forward. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, that's all it means. But yeah, scientists love their jargon. <laughs> and then I found out that uh, for a modest fee, uh, you could, well, it wasn't modest by my income standards at the time, but for a modest fee, you could join uh, a real dinosaur dig. And uh, so I um, got onto a couple of those, and that's where I met Dr. Uh, Robert Bacher. Oh. And uh, uh, spent uh, several summers uh, digging up dinosaur bones out at Como Bluff, the famous Como Bluff historical locality near uh, Medicine Bow. Pretty soon they realized I was a lot better at drawing the bones than digging them up. So uh, I spent more time during those last few years uh, drawing the quarry maps that showed where all the wow, bones cool. were relative to each other. Well, you are a, a fine illustrator and we'll have uh, examples of your work on uh, your pages at paleonerds.com. So, JP, Who, me? how did you come to uh, be at the Tate? Indeed. And what was your introduction there? So I went to school in Chicago at some point, University of Chicago, and I took a little break uh, from academia to come to South Dakota to go do research on prairie dogs with a fellow from really? Princeton named John Hoagland, who has now written the official book on black-tailed prairie dogs. And I was one of his many field assistants, and we spent... February through June in a in a tower in Bad in the uh, Wind Cave National Park, <laughs> watching prairie dogs from sunrise to sunset. Wow. So we were in our little sleeping bags, taking notes and stuff. And and then near the end of the shift, one of the grad students said, "Hey, we're not working every day now. Let's go find some fossils." And we went out to the Badlands, not the national park, but uh, we went out to what was then 
uh, and still is private land. Na- yeah, private land. Well, it was this was before the feds outside of the National Park Service had any regulations. We went to, to what was then what was still is the national grasslands, and I found an Oreodont skull, and I've been hooked ever since. Wow. Wow. So I went back to college, finished up, and I ended up getting a job, a summer job with the University of Wyoming, collecting little Cretaceous mammal teeth for the summer here in Wyoming. And I kind of fell in love with little Cretaceous mammal teeth and Wyoming. And the funny thing is, collecting those little things, we we didn't see a single one all summer long. We just collected bags of dirt at sites where they had been found in the past. And that's how I got into it. Did you sift those bags later? Eventually we did, yes. And you found many teeth, obviously. We found lots of teeth. And I took a little break to do some uh, whitewater rafting and ski bumming in between. But... Ski bumming, yeah. Yeah. I love that uh, Prairie Dogs brought you out and then you found yeah. an Oreodont skull. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know? For those of you who don't remember, an Oreodont is uh, kind of like a sheep-like. They were they were prolific, sheep-like. Are, are they from the Miocene or the Eocene? They started in the late Eocene and went up to, I believe, the Pliocene. Now, this oh, is really? where Paleo Nerd Russell has to confirm my facts. You are so, correct, sir. In certain beds, they are the most common fossil you'll find. Right. And they are, they are little herbivorous things about the size of a sheep. And America, the American West was covered with them, and now they are no more. But Well, no, you couldn't walk around without tripping over them. And now you can't walk around <laughs> in certain places without tripping over their bones. So, Russell, you are like the artist in residence there, and you have been the artist in residence there for over 23 years, and uh, you are also an interpreter as well. I, I was just wondering, with the both of you, too, I mean, I'll just start with you, Russ. What's the typical day at the Tate Museum for you, <laughs> Russ? What do you, well, is there a typical day? Um, no, no, there's a lot of variety, so it's difficult to generalize, but uh, it um, it depends on the time of year. Starts uh, with coffee, then a broom, <laughs> unlock the doors. Open my email. <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, during the summer, we have just a river of tourists flowing oh, wow. through the museum pretty much all day long. And so uh, summer days, I spend largely on my feet um, answering a zillion questions. And boy, I get some doozies. Uh, Are you like the docent walking around with a name tag? Exactly so, oh, yes. Hey, right. can you, Russell, you should share, share yesterday's question with them. About yeah. Yes. Mammoth. Oh, it's a classic. Right. Um, the I, I was explaining that uh, a trunk is actually a great big long nose and that it doesn't fossilize. And then one little girl raises her hand and says, did mammoths have any boogers? <laughs> I, I told her, you know, <laughs> I, I, I told her, you know, I uh, I got to hand it to you. I've never heard that question before. That's uh, that's a brand new one. And then I thought about it a moment and I said, you know what? Probably not much because every time they get a drink, they suck water up into their nose and then they drink by blowing their nose into their own mouth. That's how elephants do it. That's how mammoths did it. And boy, that's like getting an hourly novage. I used to have a opening act, which was a, an elephant that did uh, a little show in Reno. And when I was able to touch the tip, it was always moist. So there had to have been some sort of mucus. And that's where you get boogers from well now that is a good point yeah yeah but i think i think it's implied that a booger is going to be dried mucus that's been right. accumulated well, for, well you know what we should find, are there any 
booger paleontologist that we can research. Wait, I, I, think, I think you're talking to the expert right now. The only one that ever considered this. <laughs> oh, I've done it. I found my niche. Yeah. <laughs> I had a question for you. You you do say that you've you, that was a doozy. Just to rattle off a couple of the other just more spectacular, dumb questions. There are no well, bad questions, say, but yeah. well, come on. Yeah, I'll, I won't say dumb. I'll say with uh, minimum right. background information. Uh, did, dinosaur, <laughs> did dinosaurs wear any clothes um, was another one. Uh, yeah, uh, the, the others aren't coming to me at this moment. Uh, there are, of course, an enormous number of questions that I get very tired of. Uh, it, many is the time I've had to tell the students, okay, I will not answer any more questions that start with the words, who would win in a fight between? Right. <laughs> I don't know, and I don't care, and neither should you. I take that one, and I look at uh, modern animals. If you have the, uh, the skeleton of a modern house cat and the skeleton of a Irish setter, why, well, you could look at those two skeletons and say, this Irish setter is going to kick that cat's butt. But you know what? Uh-uh, that uh -uh. cat, you can't, it's hard to tell these things from skeletons. That's a very es good point. Especially with dinosaurs, because we don't even know which one the cat is and which one the yeah. Irish better is. <laughs> I think, wasn't there an artist who took extant skeletons and applied paleontological <laughs> constraints to them, and they came out quite different than what the extant animals look like? Yeah, that was in a, a book called All Yesterdays. And yeah, it's become kind of uh, famous. What for, is the most uh, special one that we can describe uh, verbally for our listeners? Well, um, I'd say the one that's become most famous for uh, having completely failed to nail it on the head is the hippopotamus. Because <laughs> right. yes. if you've ever seen a hippopotamus, not only does it not look like a hippopotamus, it doesn't look like anything native to this planet. It looks like right. something that should be hanging up on the alien predator's trophy room wall. And uh, so, yeah, the... Uh, um, artist just gave it no lips, no cheeks, just tusks sticking out of its mouth in various esoteric directions, and uh, right. uh, it, and it looks yeah, it weird, creepy, and you'd never in your life guess it's right. hippopotamus. Right. So wow. that begs the question: To what extent have we failed in fleshing out all our dinosaurs? Uh, sometimes I try not to think about it. Right. Well, there, there uh, was yeah. the, re the recent paper with uh, claiming that uh, T. Rex was it had lips. Oh, the lips. Had right. lips. Right. That's a been a that's been a debate for century yeah. at least. I think we brought that up a couple episodes ago, and and yeah, I'm just not going to go back and change all my art. You know, <laughs> Photoshop can fix it all, but and you know the the jury's still out on that. There are still others who are uh, steadfastly insisting. I'm not going to mention names. Tracy Ford, um, but uh, <laughs> yeah, steadfastly insisting that uh, dinosaurs had no lips. Well, and, I've got a uh, question now. A hadrosaur is not a, a predator, but there is a hadrosaur mummy or two. Are the is the skin <laughs> pulled back so far you can't tell what their mouth uh, parts look like? Well, hadrosaurs wouldn't have had lips. Uh, nobody is suggesting that hadrosaurs had lips because there's a very I understand well that. What I'm beak. saying is we haven't yet found a mummified T-Rex, which is a possibility. Oh, I see what you're saying. I think from what I know that the most of the hadrosaur skeletons don't have much, or mummies, I should say, don't have much mummification on the head. And if you right. do, it's distorted enough right. that you can't make a good reconstruction or you can't make a non-controversial reconstruction <laughs> sure like sure. i know that the feet on the berlin specimen are just and i think the new york city specimen are just beautiful with little pads and half web toes or something like that 
but I think the head stuff just got a little more distorted and right. I've seen a few of them and I can't remember the actual answer, but that's my gut feeling. So the jury's out until we see a, a, yeah. an impression, a head impression of a T-Rex that fell in the mud. The lipstick. Or even a small cousin of it. Yeah, yeah. JP, at the museum, what are you doing during the day while Russell's out there leading people around? Well, see what we're doing here sitting at the computer? This is what I do a lot of. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> right now, I'm spending my time. We do an annual conference here, the Tate Conference, which we've been All doing right. for how many years, Russell? 27. Yes, 27 years. The and Triassic doing, Conference. It's Triassic this year, so I've been organizing that, and that takes a lot of my time this week. And then a lot of cataloging. We do a lot of collecting in the summer. And I have a flock of 10 volunteers who actually work on the bones. And I answer their questions and give them advice. And they are piling up the bones faster than I can catalog them. So cataloging is a big part. So you're warehousing your discoveries and you've got, uh, do you have a prep lab that people can we do. watch? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've we been got in watch. We've got a big uh, fishbowl prep lab. Yeah, people can oh, watch. Okay. They can not only can they watch, but and I shouldn't I shouldn't publicize this, but I will. They will. <laughs> they can knock on the window and say, "Hey, what are you working on?" And uh, right. it's a sliding window, so people. We usually put someone sociable up in front of that window, and <laughs> often, oftentimes, they're out there talking to families and groups of kids who really want to know what the heck they're doing, and it's pretty cool. It's a kind of a one-on-one. -on -one uh, museum cool. experience for a lot of these folks. What's in that lab right now? Let's see. There's a big jacket in the middle with some what used to be articulated sauropod tailbones, and I've got three people working on that one. Uh, unfortunately, the bones were right on the surface, so the quality of the bones is pretty, what's the word, crappy? <laughs> but some of them are salvageable, and this dinosaur actually had uh, a skull associated with it, so oh, that wow. part's pretty cool. Wow, uh, cool. More on that later. I mean, okay. a lot later once we get it prepped, not okay. like later in this program. <laughs> You're dropping hints everywhere here, JP. Jeez. Got to keep people interested. <laughs> well, actually, speaking of uh, dropping all these hints, actually, in the emails we were exchanging, you said not to mention the marine crocodile. <laughs> <laughs> and then you said maybe I could mention it, but... He said, don't mention the marine crocodile is so cool. Hey, if you said you can edit things out. I sure can? can. I sure can. But that's only if I choose to. Yeah. No, no, we can mention the marine crocodile. Why is it cool? How old is it? Where'd you find it? Uh, well, those are a couple of good questions. Actually, it's three good questions. How old, where we find it, and why is it so cool? Let's like do Derek that Briggs order. called the uh, X from the Wyatty of Zealand. <laughs> wow. <laughs> you are a paleo nerd, Russell. Yeah. <laughs> and not only does he know this stuff, he remembers it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so it's a marine crocodile from the Cretaceous. Uh, so crocodiles right now are mostly freshwater, you know, Australian saltwater crocodiles by their name, will play in salt water, but they're just as happy in fresh water. But these things were primarily marine, living in oceans, and they are well known from certain parts of the world and not very well known from Montana and Wyoming. Mm. There's one good specimen in Montana, and there's, I think, one anyway, but there's none from Wyoming. So this is hopefully, right now we have three or four bones exposed, and that might be the best Cretaceous marine crocodile from Wyoming. We got wow. a half exposed last year, and then it, it turned into just a huge rock with bones exposed. And so we're trying to collect this huge rock. 
And why is it so cool? Because it's a one of a kind. Right. It's, and again, you know, I think dinosaurs are cool, but crocodiles are even cooler because because we know what they look like and and we can just imagine them going back and tickling the feet of those dinosaurs mm -hmm. or in this case the mosasaurs since it's a marine uh marine crocodile would it have had uh like uh, flippers instead of fingers i think it would have i, mean, I think that certainly the toe bones would have been maybe more closely knit yeah but the webbing unfortunately doesn't uh preserve exactly. it so um, i mean they're so well adapted these crocodiles went into the ocean two or three different times independently during the uh, course of their their history. And uh, w one group got a lot farther along than the others, and uh, they lost their armor, and uh, th they really do look like the toes and fingers were fully webbed into really, truly little flipper paddles. The other thing to consider there is that modern crocodiles are primarily tail propelled, so would they even need webbed feet? Hmm. Ah, very interesting. Should we get into the controversy, Ray? I, 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 could, I could see you, you're, you're mulling that over. I am. Broach the I topic, am. sir. <laughs> well, I could, let me set it up. and then Yeah, you, you, you set it, it up, and then I'll tell you where I get I'm my evidence from. You know, I love walking into the Tate. Every time I come there, I see the killer pig up there. I see D the mammoth and say hello. He's lost half a tusk, you know. <laughs> and this last time I came in, there's a, lo and behold, what? There's this big ceratopsian back here. It's a <gasps> torosaurus. It's massive. It's huge. I hadn't seen it. And there's your setup. Oh, and <laughs> I'm saying, no, it's not a torosaurus. It's just a grandpa triceratops. Ooh. Oh, Dave, oh, Dave, oh, Dave. It's just oh. an old triceratops. <laughs> when you look oh. at the morphology and you, you look at them from, from juvenile, nothing changes except the holes get bigger. I mean, the skull does change in shape a bit, but it's just an old grandpa triceratops. And whose, whose horns have fallen off, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> tell me why, why it's a separate species. I'll think the first bat, and then Russell, you can do the fine tuning. How's that sound? Okay. <laughs> I think a lot of that, a lot of that is based on the fact that Triceratops is very common in the Lance and Hell Creek formations of the late Cretaceous of the Western Interior area. Uh, Taurosaurus is not, so that's the start of the setup. There are at this point, I think ours is the sixth nice, uh, fairly complete skull that's known. The largest one, it's got a skull that's nine feet long. Whoa. It's the largest skull of any living, or any living, yeah, right, of any <laughs> land animal. I get my L words confused. Uh, so it's got the largest skull of any land animal. And wow. so it's, it's big. It's fair assumption to say that that animal is very old. Now, is it an old triceratops? Uh, the folks who did that study are certain to say so. But because, because they came out and did that study, people have started looking at ceratopsian remains a little bit more. And I have heard word, and uh, I won't say from who, because, because honestly, I can't remember, but I've heard word <laughs> that there have been smaller Taurosaurus-type skulls found out there, which would blow that whole theory out of the water. Sure, sure. And is there any type of a, a, an aging evidence, you know, growth rings on a, on a Triceratops or Ceratopsian? 
There should be, but I don't know um, if anybody has uh, actually studied that just yet. I smell feces. <laughs> Maybe somebody uh -huh. listening out there right yeah. now is. Uh... If only you know, aged ceratopsians have the giant holes in their frills, and you can't find any young well, ones, then they would. Well, that might be a smoking gun. But we've had some previous guests who've talked about the you know the histology, the bone, the marrow can really ah, tell you the mm -hmm, age of the right, animal right. too, but. But Russell, you you wanted the back clean up there on the Taurosaurus uh, versus Triceratops. That's a sports reference. He doesn't know those. <laughs> Not a clue. Oh, right, I'm with you there, dude. But... I think what is great about science is just that a paper comes out that proves Joe wrong, and then Fred does a paper that proves Joe right, and then Fred's wrong. And I mean, it's fantastic how science is ever changing. Yeah. Yeah, it's a lot of the fun. I was just going to say that uh, because the ranges of the two forms are are different, that really up in Alberta, Canada, people find Triceratops, but no Taurosaurus. Down in New Mexico and Utah, people find Taurosaurus, but no Triceratops. Here in Wyoming, we're lucky. Uh, that's where the ranges of the two forms uh, oh, overlap. Wow. Interesting. Yeah, but um, so I do think it's a different species, but because it's so bloody similar that people are actually proposing that it's nothing but a senior citizen Triceratops, I would suggest a compromise and uh, regard it as a separate species within the genus Triceratops. So we'd have the Triceratops horridus and then another species within that genus, right. Triceratops latus. Right, that makes sense to me too, is that there's this variation within within the, the genera, within the genus, right? So, I mean, it's a Triceratops, Taurosaurus, Toro, but but there we are, we're getting deep into science and stuff, but yes, JP, you've raised your fingers, sir. I also wanna say that since we've had our Taurosaurus skull mounted, her name is Nicole, by yeah, the way. Yeah, I see Nicole. Since, yeah. since uh, Nicole's been mounted and on display, we've had two visiting scientists come over and measure her. And she was found about the same time they found one in a construction site in uh, in Denver. The one in Denver right. I know about that one. Is, has a lot more postcranials. We just have a skull. The one in Denver is a pretty good specimen. And I think there's going to be papers coming out based on these two specimens that just might answer these questions. Again, I leave you with a teaser. Okay. And what does postcranial mean? Postcranial means... From the neck down. Yes, past the skull. So posterior is butt-wise, oh. anterior is nose-wise, posterior yeah. to the skull, postcranial. So how does it happen when uh, somebody uh, runs into a Taurosaurus uh, out in the field somehow? Did you guys find that, or did you get an emergency phone call, come get this Taurosaurus, there's a bulldozer about to take this down? How, how did that one come to the museum? Well, our geology professor actually has been doing field trips out to this one ranch near town, and he's the one who found it. His name is Kent Sundell. I think uh, Kent Russell mentioned him earlier. Kent found it on one of his geology class field trips, and he right. said, hey, we should go find, we should go collect this thing. And it, we thought it was a triceratops, of course, for years and years. Well, uh, it took it took one of our volunteers, I think, three years to prepare yeah. that thing. And somewhere in that two year wow. two, year three, we realized, hey, wait a second, this frill is really, really thin, and it, it comes to uh, a holy end. <laughs> Wow. And I've read too, JP, that you were out um, 
enjoying nature when you found the I, th I like to think I was enjoying my coffee, Ray. Nature is always out there to enjoy. <laughs> Expose yourself to the wild. That's ah, yes. right. Recycling it. Letting the coffee go, as it were. So is... tell that story. Uh, What's the story? Finding a, a T-Rex out in the wild. Well, uh, we, like I said, we've been doing, or I haven't mentioned yet, we've been doing uh, these pay-to-dig trips for 18 years now, as long as I've been here at the Tate. How much does it, an average person pay to do a dig? An average person pays $4,000, but we let most of our people come on for a, about $1,100. For how long? Is this, are they volunteers or just tourists? Uh, five, that's five days. No tourists, volunteers. Five days, you can either dig in the Lance Formation or the Morrison Formation, right. and we take you out Monday through Friday and put you in a hotel, feed you all the food oh, you can really? eat. Wow. Beer, beer is on your own, Dave. Yeah, but yeah, we were on one of these trips, and uh, we were at one of these sites where that I that we would take people to because there's lots of little bones washing out of it, and I would tell them to go find some bones, scatter to the four winds, people find some bones, and I discreetly went over to get rid of my coffee where nobody could see me, tossing the cup out and <laughs> playing uh, strategically with the wind so that nobody could tell later whether that I had been yeah. tossing the cup out. We were having a whiz. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> Someone had to say it. And I call it contributing to the World Nitrogen Fund. <laughs> and I walked over this little area that had some bones uh, just kind of between the blades of sagebrush. And I, uh, we left them there for quite a while. Didn't realize what they were, but we left them there as a show and tell to what bigger bones look like. Wow. And then one day we decided to explore it. And we could tell at that point that there was a couple of vertebrae lined up. And on the edge of the rocks, we could see enough bones sticking out of the rock to say, oh, cool, this is a T-Rex. Really? And wow. Then, then we made a deal with the landowners to collect it, and they were quite amenable. They were actually quite excited. This is exposed to the air? These bones are out? It was only only one vertebra that was actually exposed to the air, and actually there was pieces of eroded vertebra next to it. How much did you have to reveal to definitively determine it's not an ornithomimid and it's a T-Rex? Well, A, it's big. It's in a 18-foot-long rock. And sticking out of the tail end of the rock, if we can call it that, because there were two tailbones sticking out, which were not in the rock. So the rock is called a concretion, which is basically right. a hard rock that forms around usually something organic. So the concretion grew, but it didn't grow big enough to cover these last two tail vertebrae, and they were distinctively T-Rex. Wow. They're, they have special shape to them. And, and we spent uh, what, five weeks the next summer digging it up. Then we spent some time the next three summers looking for the head, and we got skunked. But we have a cool specimen. It still might be out there, but... Uh, well, you know, that third yeah. year, we made a really big hole, Ray. We uh, went about <laughs> we 100 feet, 100 feet all over the place, and yeah, we looked for it. Nothing. It could be in the Gulf of Mexico by now. And why do you think, why is the skulls so, they're so well, huge and strong. I mean, so many specimens don't have skulls. Well, this, this this one is an articulated specimen, so it's 22 feet of vertebrae, most of the pelvis, and one femur, and all that is still in life position, pretty much. So it's not just the skull that washed away. It's the tip of the tail. It's most of the legs. It's the shoulders and arms. It's the neck and the skull. Was it a river basin? We think it was a floodplain. Right. 
and the animal died, started decomposing, and then another flood came along and moved most of the animal downstream. But this massive piece that was the middle of the body probably still had enough gooey parts on it right. that it didn't move as far. Mm. The rest of the animal went floating down to the uh, Cretaceous um, Gulf of Mexico. Well, at that point, it would have been the Cretaceous Sea that was only 50 miles away. <laughs> huh. I'm uh, interested. Uh, it's called the Lee Rex. And uh, given its uh, method of discovery, why is it called the P-Rex? I have never <laughs> thought of that. I, you know? Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, anyway, well, here's my question. Um, and I've always... So, Hell Creek, the Hell Creek Formation, 66 million years old. The Lance Formation... Same age, same, same same thing, same thing. Six. So it's it's right there with the asteroid sixty six million years ago. Why is it called the Lance and not the Hell Creek? Hometown pride. Hometown pride. Is that oh. really how it is? A Wyoming geologist was doing the geology of Wyoming at the same time as a Montana geologist or a Dakota geologist. I guess okay. it would be Montana because he named it after Hell Creek in Montana. And the, the two met somewhere on the borderline and said, hey, wait, this is the same stuff. Yeah, but I'm not changing my name, damn it. Right. So really, the Lance Formation could continue outside the state, and it's, but then it's a Hell Creek. And it goes into Colorado, and it's called the right. Laramie Formation down okay, there. Okay, all right. Thank you. I just want to say, that, you, and that's one of the very, you know, when I worked on uh, Cruise the Fossil Freeway with Kirk Johnson, uh, he was at the Denver Museum of, of Nature and Science at the time. And we got this book contract and he said, you know, the very first place that we have to go to trolls, we just got right the heck out of uh, Colorado and went to Wyoming because he said, it's got everything. <laughs> and you go pretty much all the way through the geologic column and it's got, and you've got, you know, Cambrian stuff, but you've also got, you know, all the, the Morrison, you got the Cretaceous, all that good stuff. All the, all, all the good mammal beds above the dinosaurs and you have fossil <laughs> cabin you have fossil cabin well, you have the building, cabin that walked yes a the, building <laughs> that's made out of huge chunkosaurus bones it's absolutely yeah that's insane. that's out of the como bluff but it is but uh the eocene beds of uh of wyoming are world renowned and i understand that you're you guys are starting to dig there too jp and what's so cool about the eocene there Oh, it's so boring. There's no dinosaurs. Uh, <laughs> wide variety of mammals. And Russell will list all 172 <laughs> genera right now. No, I'm, I'm not going to list every Eocene mammal. That Just I, for our uh, listeners, the Eocene starts 10 million years after the KPG boundary. Yep. And it goes to about 33 million years ago. Yeah, it's it's long. Yeah, uh, it's yeah. the longest epic of the uh, age of mammals. It's longer than the Margaret Thatcher administration. <laughs> <laughs> it went on and on. But what's what is cool? Give us a flavor of what the Eocene uh, has in Wyoming there. Well, if I want to showcase something for Eocene weirdness, uh, you can't beat you into Ethereum. I mean, uh, a rhinoceros with six doorknobs on top of its head and saber teeth. Um, and, 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 and it was huge. Yeah, they were huge. Oh, yeah, yeah. This is the first real mega mammal. This is the first mammal that got up to a, a weight of over a ton. Really? So, uh, yeah, rhino-sized as well mm -hmm. as roughly rhino-shaped. And, yeah, very scary-looking thing. When uh, Cope found one, they they say that all night long, um, after they dug it up during the day, all night long, Cope was having nightmares that this thing was uh, chasing him and trampling <laughs> him and tossing him in the air. Too much imagination for his own good. 
So we'll have a picture of one of those, but why why the knobs? What's that about? Why the teeth? Well, actually, the one that kind of explains the other. Uh, they were herbivores. Yeah, they were herbivores. Yeah, and so the, the teeth are really weird because they're serrated. I mean, they're not, they are not only uh, shaped like really? saber teeth, but they've got serrated edges. And so what's up with that? Uh, I don't know. It's not why they advertise. <laughs> and Russell, uh, as a visual artist uh, who loves drawing cool stuff, you were drawn to those. You know, I was drawn to those. Another and I, I remember, so to speak, we were drawn to it. Get it? <laughs> uh, I remember uh, uh, Johnson saying, too, they are huge, but he said they've really got spectacularly big butts. Like they would walk, they, yeah, huge hips. Almost everybody draws uh, them from the side, so you rarely get a sense of just how broad that pelvis is. But yeah, it's it's uh, ridiculous. They've got an abundance hmm. of junk in the trunk. So why the knobs? And wait, wait. So yeah, serrated teeth. Let me guess. Is the serrated teeth because they're eating really waxy or or hard plant stuffs? That's one suggestion, um, and then um, anti-predator weapons is another suggestion. Mm. But um, if two of these guys went after each other with their teeth, they'd slice each other to ribbons and probably die of massive infections a week later. But with the uh, blunt knobs on top of their heads, they could have these non-lethal duels where they bruise each other and leave the uh, combat um, black and blue, but at least not uh, bleeding from a thousand wounds. So that's hmm. one idea is that that's why the knobs, they're non-lethal dueling weapons. For the males and are the females different? Boy, that's something I... Yeah. Is there sexual dimorphism in, in these urinthotheriums? I just remembered a diagram I saw that showed the difference between males and females. And yeah, the females are different. Their uh, their heads are smaller okay. and, the, and their knobs are shorter. And I think their uh, their saber teeth are smaller too. Damn, where is that diagram? It's around oh, here somewhere. Sorry. You got one. But do you have one in the museum? Or are you going to get one? Not yeah. yet. Ah. We're working on it. So I'm I'm still confused. What is the earliest evidence of any animal developing any type of armor specifically for headbutting their opponent to win the girl? Wow. Uh well, That would be the uh, dinocephalian uh therapsids from the great Karoo in South Africa. Oh, right. I was gonna guess that too. Wait, wait. Yeah, me too. I almost gotcha. <laughs> You're talking about the cynodonts? way back no that's the other branch yeah so there's this uh small right. very mammal-like carnivorous branch the cynodonts although some of them uh, and they had huge tusks too yeah knobs and they were cute yeah they were they cute. probably were I, I i better decide if they were cute or not i've got to draw one coming up in the next month or so but <laughs> um the uh there was also though a big weird grotesque group of plant eaters uh the dinocephalians and uh they uh oh with the stubby included. little tails Looked and like... they got stubby little tails yeah and uh, some of them had a kind of triangular body shape the shoulders higher than the hips um a neck held uh, up diagonally and they then look like mammalian big... bullfrogs kind of a little bit yeah yeah <laughs> with, with, uh, so a, with the armor and you reckon that armor was not for protection from predators but mating dominance yeah bashing each other probably not going <laughs> head to head right. um Bighorn sheep can get away with that because they've got these very broad, flat horns that provide a very broad area uh, that they can collide yeah. with. But yeah, and they don't need chiropractors for the discs in their eyes. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Although, yeah, watching them in action, I'm amazed that they don't break their necks. 
Russell, you said you had to draw one, uh, a draw a creature here in the next couple of weeks or something. Do you take uh, direction? Does, how do you get your assignments? Is, I don't take direction well at all, but are you told, <laughs> what, are you told what to draw? Um, Who decides that? Well, it's complicated. Uh, <laughs> I, I sometimes do get instruction on what to draw, but I'm given a pretty free reign. I mean, uh, nobody around here ever tells me, you know, oh, make the neck a little longer. Oh, make the eye a little bigger. Oh, I don't like that pattern of stripes or whatever. They, they pretty much turn me loose to do what, what I uh, want to do on my own. Now, I also do sometimes, very rarely, but sometimes I do commissions for uh, professional paleontologists, mm. and they will often have some very uh, specific ideas about what they want. Russell, have you created an illustration to later find out that it was anatomically incorrect? More times than I'd care to admit. <laughs> yes, no, that has happened many, many times. Well, it's the nature of science. You, you learn. I'll, I'll butt in and say, oh, Russell often comes up to him and says, did you guys see this paper this past week? They say Tyrannosaurus Rex has lips. I got to draw all my dinosaurs all over again. <laughs> he usually doesn't, and he just smiles. <laughs> yeah, just smile. I just wanted to say that uh, Russell, I've enjoyed your art all these years, and uh, there's you could get some of your art there at the uh, the Tate Museum. But it's wonderful to walk around the Tate and see all this. You know, it's almost a lifetime of work that you've got there, man. It's like almost twenty five years you've been there, I guess. And there's so many mm -hmm. illustrations. But you and have I one think, of everything, which is great. Yeah, but I want the the great compendium of Holly drawings. It must happen, sir, in a book. That, that's a retirement project, right, Russell? <laughs> right. One of many. JP <laughs> yeah. and I are going to be so busy if we live uh -huh. long enough to retire. I'm going to say that it's really nice to hear um, praise coming from Ray Troll. I've uh, been an <laughs> admirer of your artwork ever since I first saw it. The first picture I, I ever saw of yours, I think, was either fish worship, is it wrong, <laughs> or spawn till you die. I don't remember which of those two. I know they were fish themed, and yeah. I thought to myself, oh, my goodness. Well, thanks, Russell. Yeah. This this guy shares my uh, sense of humor. <laughs> I, I remember the first thing he said, you know, and you, we when we're geeking out, it's like <laughs> it it is not all about the dinosaurs. You know, people just, you know, they're just drawn to dinosaurs and like there are all these other cool creatures. And so you've been shining a light all these years. But we bonded over hell pigs all those years ago, man. So, uh, well, you know, there's never been a movie where, you know, Archetherium was the star. Could that I would know. be, can you imagine a hell pig running through a city? Oh, dude. <laughs> I'm like, I've written out the most fantasy scenes for the Hell Pig, Hell Pig, the movie. Yeah. You know, oh my God. These things hell. were nasty. Oh, yeah. And actually, there's evidence. You guys have the evidence, and uh, Sundell worked in this, right? And you did the illustrations where the little tiny camels were ripped in two and then stashed away in little hell pig cage yeah, right? in a meat cage. And, and the yeah. thing is, is that they wouldn't go for the front legs. They went for the yeah, juicy, the juicy butt rump, the rump sticks. Yeah. yeah, I want to watch that movie. Yeah, well, see, this is why they need to stop churning out sequels to Jurassic Park because yeah. David Drake's Time Safari and Rivers of Time, uh, the, the Gun for Dinosaur series by Elsprog de Camp, both include lots of scenes set in the tertiary, not just the age of dinosaurs. And so if some, if, if Hollywood could get rid of their Jurassic Park tunnel vision, they could make those. I'll, I'll tell you why there's a tunnel vision is that 
The idea that monsters were so big that could kill and eat you really existed. People don't realize that the stuff of nightmares were in the Paleocene, the Eocene, the Oligocene. They, they existed in, in the Cenozoic. Oh, yeah, so, yeah. you know, Hollywood needs to get on the Cenozoic bandwagon. <laughs> yeah. There were some pretty big carnivores in the Eocene, too. JP, what's the coolest fossil prep ever? Oh, yeah, okay. Oh, uh, you mean coolest thing I've worked on? Yes. Well, yeah, yes. yeah, I mean, that yeah. you're working on, you're going, I can't believe I'm working on it. I've done two that I, I are on top of my list, and I think Ray yeah. knows one of them quite well. Oh, man. So I'll hold that one for a second. But I did a, a little Cretaceous crocodile that was maybe the size of my head, curled up in a little ball from Tanzania and eventually published as Pacasuchus. Oh, wow. And it was, wow, it was just so damn cute. <laughs> and it was a crocodile with a skull about, the skull was- Fully articulated? It was fully articulated, I would say 90%. It was full size. And it's a part of the family of Notosuchians, which is a Southern Hemisphere Cretaceous group that just did all kinds of weird things, including these guys were apparently vegetarians. What? They had teeth like mammals. They had mammal-like teeth. Wow. Vegetarian yeah. crocodile. Yeah. Wow. Believe it or not. Wow. And they did not have pointy snouts. This guy had a little round button Aww. snout, if you will. It was just so oh, damn I cute. I want one. Oh. Yeah. Me <laughs> too. And that number and two. Number two, I'm going to let you pronounce it, Ray. Gunica date. Yeah, Gunica date. Uh, excuse you. Uh, uh, let me get you a tissue. Gunica date. Gunica date. It was a uh, Triassic. Nothosaur from the great state of Alaska. Thalatosaur, oh. sir. Thalatosaur, yes, thank you. I'm I'm glad someone's here to keep <laughs> me straight. Keep me straight, man. Thalatosaur, so a little marine reptile from a group that is fairly not well known. The thing was maybe two feet long. Wow. Well, with the yeah. tail, it was longer. But yeah, but, yeah. but the, the specimen was missing a bunch of the tail, but it got weathered away by the ocean. And, uh, it was found yeah. in southeastern Alaska with a, within the intertidal zone. Yep. So it had things like barnacles growing on the rock. But I got invited to go work on it up in Fairbanks at the University of Alaska. And I spent five weeks up there. With Pat Druckenmiller? Yes, yes, with Pat Druckenmiller. And, and uh, uh, Jim Bastel uh, was there when it was found. And Gunnica yeah. Date is a uh, Clinkett sea monster. Uh, it was a oh. story in Clinkett culture. And... Uh, I had originally suggested that when I knew or found out about this latosaur and it was found near you the You suggested the name, Ray? Yes, I did. Oh, really? Actually, I, I, knew, I knew about it. That's how he knows about this thing. Well, I, I knew about it, and Jim Basil let me know about this latosaur coming from the Triassic rocks. And we have the same Triassic rocks on Gravina Island here in Ketchikan. Oh. And so I was all excited. I've been tracking all this all these years. But when it was found, this remarkable marine reptile, uh, just the preservation on it was extraordinary. Yeah. But uh, it, it's right there uh, near the town of uh, Cake, which is a Clinkett village, and it just seemed like the appropriate thing to do. And I suggested it to Pat Druckenmiller and and Jim, and uh, then they they liked the idea. And then I approached uh, Rosita Whirl at the Sea Alaska Heritage Foundation to see if it'd be appropriate, mm. and if the uh, elders. And uh, it's actually an important crest animal uh, for a number of the clans in the Southeast. You don't just arbitrarily go about naming, naming something things, without yeah. without talking to somebody just to see if it's appropriate. And if yeah. it, and um, the elders were the elders were excited about it. If you suggest the name, does that mean you name it? No, no, no. I didn't do that. No, 
So you suggest the name, the name becomes kind of the nickname, but not the but not the no, taxonomic name. It's it is it no, is it is the, the taxonomic oh. name. I, I suggested it. Right. The scientist said that's a perfect name. Right. Then I and said, it. let's get some approval on sure. it. Sure. It's a sea monster story that's been mm -hmm. told up and down the coast. And this, even though it's diminutive, this is a little guy, it maybe is a juvenile. Sure. But so there is I've asked <laughs> I've asked Druckenmiller about this. Yeah. But I just got to say, JP, too, and I want to I want to throw some light on you here now. No shade, no only light, because you, <laughs> the two of you are extraordinary. And JP, you're known around the world for your fossil prep uh, skills, your uh, preparation well, skills. And you were called thanks, in. Man. This is the only one in the world, <laughs> the only fossil this animal ever found. And you don't want to screw that up. <laughs> and the, the workmanship that you put into that, you got to know, how do you do that where you know exactly where to stop as you're, were you using an air scribe? Were you chiseling? I was using a, a basically a tabletop sandblaster under the microscope. Tabletop and, sandblaster. And I, wow. you know, we talked about Russell using a 0. 0.005 micro <laughs> pen to do stippling. And that kind of work is way too fast. So this is, it's just a question of going very slowly and patiently. I mean, five weeks to work on a specimen that's only two feet long. Right. That'd give folk an idea how, wow. how much I was doing per day. But every rib, every tiny tooth, everything was yeah. there and yeah. it was exquisite. And, and it's down it's, to the it's, toes. It's a, it's a work of art and it just makes you appreciate But that's heavily the, metamorphic yeah. rock. Oh, I mean, yeah. That's Cooked. It's not it's not metamorphic, but it's uh and, it's very yeah. hard stuff, oh, and it's yeah. it is flattened. It's a flat specimen, but the cool thing about it is it has this really pointy, pointy, pointy snout no. with yeah. no teeth in the first right. oh, I don't know three quarters of an inch, hmm. and then it has this row of two rows. I mean, top and bottom of just nasty looking teeth. We'll so have a picture have, yeah. of it on your page. Of yeah, the, and then uh, I, th the I think there's a painting by Mr. Ray Troll. Yeah, then so I got to draw the draw the image. And anyways, it's and we have a cast of it here at the Catch Can Museum right now. That, I have uh, one here too. And you've got one Thanks, there. Thanks, Pat. It's a it's a really <laughs> cool thing. But I think it's probably time for the question today. Dave. All right, gentlemen, and I I will put this to both of you. What epic epoch? What perfect paleo period? What awesome age? What time period would you want to go back to and what would you want to see given that you were able to get to, into a time machine and go back and look at something? Over to you. Russell. Oh, boy. It, it is a tough call. Um, it's a it's a pretty close, almost three-way tie, but um, I'm still going to hold out for the Devonian. Oh. You know, if you if you go back to you. a Cretaceous forest, uh, well, you can find forests a bit like that in Louisiana and Florida. If you go to a Jurassic forest, it's a little bit like the monkey puzzle forests in Chile. If you go back to visit a Devonian forest, you might as well be on another planet. There would yeah. not be a single recognizable yeah. plant um, to ferns. you except for ferns. horsetails. Yeah. yeah, ferns and horsetails. But the trees, I the mean, massive trees, trees with leaves on their trunks instead of bark and plants like gigantic stalks of asparagus and it would yeah. just be such a weird alien environment and of course we often have to reconstruct these forests in bits and pieces i want to see it green and growing excellent and i want to go fishing there too of course and you know oh, why. cool oh yeah <laughs> oh yeah yeah jp I, I i just want to say that i love to hear the paleontologist russell who's been talking about animals and you ask him that question and he goes right to plants that's, <laughs> that's pretty cool that's cool. 
the unexpected. My, my answer is, and I'll go back to the Eocene because the Eocene has all these weird, weird mammals referencing the Green River Formation in Wyoming, which has the second richest bird fauna of the Eocene after some dump in Germany. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, being a bird watcher all my life, I would love to go oh. bird watching in the Eocene. Wow. Mm. I think that would be and so would cool. And would you go to the Simpsons age, the Bartonian? <laughs> <laughs> I think the Bartonian is in Europe. I don't even know where it fits in the... I would go to the Wasatchian or the Bridgerian here in oh, uh, North in America. I, I wow. see that Dave's got a cue card there. He's reading. I I, <laughs> well, no, I have I have all the ages. I have all the... You must have it on the wall there. I have the ages. I have the periods and uh, sub-periods, but... Uh, my little card says in the Eocene, there's the Eprisian. Yep. That's the first one. Then the Lutitian, uh, Bartonian, and Preabonian. And those are the, Euro those are the Euro European ages. So those are European. Ah. So, so, so they are, so these ages are indicative of, of the world. They're indicative they of are, where they're you based, are. They're based on similarity of fossils. Oh. Generally, I'm going to say... On, on a very, so I'm on a reading an European cue card while you guys are in Wyoming. Yeah, but, <laughs> yeah. Wow. but there, are, there are conversions and they, the, the, the periods almost follow each other. Yeah. Wow. And if you go to New Zealand, they use totally New Zealand terms over there. Right. JP, if you're bird watching in the Eocene, don't you want to see a Gastornis, sir? Absolutely. <laughs> From a safe distance. Biggest bird in North America. One in our museum. There's the one museum. parked up front, right? So. <laughs> well, no, it's in the lobby now. Oh, wait, is we, the Gastornis oh. the terror bird? Yes. Right. And, uh, taller, it... taller than Russell. Okay, my question is uh, to JP. Uh-oh. As I understand it, most museums only display 10% of their collections and that the majority of awesome fossils and finds are hidden from the public behind closed doors. What are your biggest challenges as a collections manager? And how do you determine... What goes on display compared to what stays in the collection vaults? That's a good question, and one and and it's it's actually quite limited at this point by the fact that we don't have anyone working on displays who can put the time into it. So it's something that Russell and I and our director would have to kind of tag team, and we're, we're all pretty busy. But if I had my druthers and we had that person, I would tell them to put some of our more we've been uh we've been working on some cretaceous bone bed sites so basically these are piles of lance formations sediments where the bones of all kinds of creatures washed up and we get a lot of just crappy chunkosaurs which are just rolled pieces of bone that you can't identify but we get some pretty neat stuff so we've got two crocodile skulls and they're actually on display now from the cretaceous and they're both pretty cool uh, Chris Brochu was here a few years ago and he said, he saw one of them. He said, wow, the, the Lance Formation, there's only three crocodile skulls known from the Lance. And I said, this is number four. And number five is in a jacket in, the, in storage. <laughs> so we have those two. And then we have just a lot of odds and ends. We got a beautiful little, little pachycephalosaur jaw, about three inches long. And we got some uh, toe bones and claws and teeth and just miscellaneous bones of all kinds of things. And it would be really cool to do a display of what died in the Cretaceous. Right, right. And how'd they end up on this damn sandbar? But who decides <laughs> what, what 
gets on display i mean obviously there's well, limited space but yeah is that you i mean you do you say oh let's let's move this uh skull it's a, it's a, it's a team effort and uh, we committees. actually just committee we yeah. just we just yeah. got donated by uh, one of our uh fans i will say cast of a permian gorgonopsid skull oh but that is pretty unique we don't have anything like that so that one will probably go pretty high on the list of things to get out there great it'll add to our permian display Right. And right now in the Cretaceous display right now, we do have a good sampling of all this crap that died. I mean, all these cool animals that died. <laughs> crap that died. That's, that should be the sign out front. You know what? That's going to be the name of this podcast. Yes. This will be the name of this episode. Cool crap that died. I love it. Hey, Dave, I, I want to use a sports analogy on Russell again. I want to throw a curveball, if I may. I know you were wrapping it up, but... I just have to ask you this. I don't know. But Russell, why is paleontology relevant in our world? In uh, one of John Varley's books, somebody is reconstructing Gothic cathedrals out of uh, the original materials as closely as possible. And somebody asks him, why is he doing that? And he replies, if you have to ask the question, you probably wouldn't understand the answer. Oh, oh, I just I didn't know that. What? <laughs> no, I mean, I know that you can see the value of paleontology, uh, and uh, we all three can see the value of paleontology. But for our listeners who aren't necessarily yeah. scientists. I imagine most of the listeners who are listening in uh, are, are already on our side. But let's uh, imagine that they're not. Science, it gives us a, a place in history. It uh, tells us where we fit into the overall grand scheme of things. And um, it's just a hell of a story. I mean, I feel that the human soul is enriched by knowing about the thousand unnamed worlds that came before us, each one with its own ecosystem, its own flora and fauna, its own geography, its own atmospheric composition. You don't have to go to uh, a galaxy far, far away to experience alien worlds. They're all right here under our feet, it's and true. we have to visit them by traveling in time rather than space. Dude, it's true. It's I brilliant. knew you'd wrap brilliant. it up beautifully. Dude. Nice, Russell. And I, I really do believe it. Yeah. It's, you know, if we don't know where we come from and where the world comes from, we don't know who or even what we are. And we'll yeah. have no clue where we're going. Brilliant. So, hey, it has been an absolute delight catching up with both of you. And I, I, I can't wait to get back to the Tate Museum. And it's been a great show. Thank you, guys. You're very welcome. You're very and, welcome. Thank you. And we for look forward us. to seeing you here again in person. Thanks for being on Paleo Nerds. Thank show. you, Dave. Rock. Thanks for having us. The part we were born to play. You guys rock. Woohoo! Well, that was fun. I really enjoyed that. <laughs> I did too, man. I'll tell you, Russell, Russell is, he's, what is he, some sort of Mensa genius? Why? Well, is a wealth of information. He just rattles off the stuff. He's a, a proud nerd, too, as am I. And yeah, uh, yeah. I really like that we we took the step and had the duo on because yeah. they kind of play off each other. And they've been working together for 20 plus years. Sure. Now, so, so, yeah, I think it was really cool. And then, I mean, I realized it, too, and I was thinking uh, Russell's praises with his skills. And I realized, wait, you know, JP is really an artist, too, in what he does. So oh, yeah. He's, so let me, let me get this straight. He's so skilled. He is like one of the most skilled preparators, and that's why he was called in. It's like the bomb diffuser. Uh, he's the one. He's one of the best ones that could 
yeah. uh, prepare yeah. these specimens. I didn't realize that he was. Yeah. If you want a top-notch for... guy to do the stuff, he is right. the guy, especially for delicate stuff. He is known. You get a reputation. Well, that was a great, great episode. I, I always learn a new thing uh, or two, you know, every time we talk to folks and, uh, you know, all the cool fossils in Wyoming and, and you know, crocodilians, a vegetarian crocodile. Yeah, that's take crazy. That. That's, a, that's a good takeaway for and me. And how about a, a vegetarian that has serrated teeth? Yeah, I did not know the interferes had saber teeth. Yeah, that's crazy. Goodbye from very strange cloud formation here in Sunset in Ojai, California. They look like giant cigars. Or fish, perhaps, without fins. Yeah, low-finned fish. Low-finned, lobeless fins. But anyways, signing off from, you know what? It's raining again here in Ketchikan. Signing <laughs> off from Ketchikan. It was a sunny day this morning, but now it's raining. And you know what? I feel at peace with the world when it rains here, Dave, because I know that it's, you know, that's what it's supposed to do here, man. Yeah, so that's awesome. That's beautiful, right? Yeah. I'll see you next time. Peace out, dude. Thanks for being a paleo nerd. Help us spread the word of science. Rate us on Apple Podcasts and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can even email your questions and comments to nerds at paleonerds.com. Did you know each episode is paired with pictures and links? Check out paleonerds.com for photographic evidence that everyone here has been a paleo nerd for a long, long time. I'm a paleo nerd. I'm a paleo nerd. I'm a paleo nerd. Don't you understand? I'm a paleo nerd. I'm a paleo nerd. I'm a paleo nerd.